Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up on this week's programme, is it La Marseillaise or La Malaise for the markets after Macron's election victory? Either a Le Pen victory or Mélenchon, who was also anti-EU, anti-Euro, would have been pretty disastrous. How Donald Trump's contradictions might cost the economy. The administration hasn't been completely clear on how it sees the tax cuts it's proposing stimulating the economy. And is it a bird? Is it a plane? Or is it a milestone for Chinese manufacturing? Although um, one can expect these planes to be at an airport near you in China, outside of China, I'm not quite sure that's going to be the case in the next few years. But first, France has chosen this man to lead their country by a landslide of 66% of the votes. Merci, mes amis. Merci à vous d'être là ce soir. The markets have dodged the bullet of a Marine Le Pen victory. But how have they been reacting this morning? Our Buttonwood columnist and markets expert Philip Coggan joins us now. Morning, Philip. Well, this is a classic example, Simon, of buy on the rumour, sell on the news. The markets had already anticipated that Macron would win, perhaps not by so big a margin. But while the euro perked up a little last night, it has sold off today. The French stock market is down and the spread between German and French bond yields, which is the most significant measure of credit risk in France, has barely budged. So it's almost the reverse of what one might have expected. Yes, I think it's because in the first round, it was pretty clear that Le Pen didn't do as well as people feared. Macron was actually in the lead in that first round. All the polls were pointing to 60% or so for Macron. So the fact that he's done that is already anticipated. And now people are contemplating the task ahead of him, which won't be easy. He's got to somehow get a parliamentary majority in the elections next month. And of course, he's starting with a party that didn't exist a year ago. And the problems facing France are still quite intense. They need quite a lot of reform and reform will face a fight back from the left in particular and from protesters on the streets. So it's not clear that he'll manage to push that through. Nevertheless, the prospect of a potential Le Pen victory is a cloud that's been hanging over not just the French markets, but all of Europe for some time now. In the long term, this must be seen as a net positive for the outlook. Definitely. Either a Le Pen victory or Mélenchon, who was also anti-EU, anti-Euro, would have been pretty disastrous. It would have raised the spectre of a full breakup of the EU, the end of the euro. And of course, that would be hugely risky for owners of peripheral government bonds. Everybody would have wanted to own German government bonds and nobody would have wanted to own Italy or Spain or France. So that would have been incredibly disruptive. And the recent data on European economic growth has been quite good. Actually, in the first quarter of the year, the EU grew faster than either the US or the UK. And so 
that's the best news for Macron as well. If he can get the backdrop of a fairly strong economy, it'll be easier to push through reforms. And of course, when it comes around to 2022, it'll be easier for him to get re-elected and less likely that Miss Le Pen will have another go. So after heaving a sigh of relief over this election, are market observers now going to be preoccupied with other countries, with the prospect of a crisis in Italy, with the German elections, with a still unresolved debt crisis in Greece. Absolutely. I think in order, Italy is probably the big worry because Five Star could win in elections there. Greece has been rumbling along, but that's very well known about. The German elections, at the moment, Mrs Merkel looks likely to win. Uh, It's just a question of what sort of coalition she comes up with. But either her or the opposition SPD are pro-Euro. So it's not a question of that election going to the kind of party like the Front National or uh, Brexit campaign. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And if you have any thoughts about the election or anything else in the programme, do get in touch. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter, and you can send us emails to radioateconomist.com. Now, a look at Trumponomics. Donald Trump campaigned hard on the economy, but the details of his policies are only now taking shape. So which of his words will translate into actions, and how will the economy react? Henry Kerr, our US economics editor, joins me down the line from Washington, and Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, is here with me in the studio. Henry, is it possible to talk of such a thing as Trumponomics, or is it all too vague and contradictory to put a shape to? I think there are really two goals to Trumponomics. The first is higher growth during the campaign The president spoke a lot about getting 3.5% to 4% economic growth. That now seems to have been toned down to more like 3%, but that's clearly a a key goal. And the second one is the return of high-skilled manufacturing jobs to the US. They have another objective, which is to reduce America's trade deficit. They see that as evidence that America has been losing and, and they really want to squash that. Are those main goals compatible? Can you have faster growth and a lower trade deficit? That really is the, the, the most glaring contradiction in this agenda. So Sumer is right that they want to get the trade deficit down. I think they see that as a kind of intermediate step. They see the trade deficit as a drag on the economy and something that's reducing growth. That's a controversial economic view. If you picture the American trade deficit, America imports a lot of clothes, toys and so on from, from Asia. And when it imports more than it exports, what those foreigners get back is claims on the US economy. So they invest in the US economy. The US economy essentially hasn't paid them in goods for those clothes and toys and so on. It's paid them in debt and in investments in the, in the US economy. And that kind of capital inflow into the US funds spending in the US economy today. So it's a measure of national borrowing. It's as if the country is borrowing to spend more at home. So if you're going to heat up the US economy domestically and have more investment, for instance, and certainly if you're going to have a bigger government deficit, traditionally that's associated with a higher trade deficit, a kind of hot economy sucking in lots of imports and sucking in lots of foreign capital rather than a lower one. So that's the main contradiction within those aims. It's a pretty common misperception that one's you know, trade deficit is a drag on growth. Back in the 1930s, when the global economy was, was doing pretty badly, people blamed foreigners for taking American jobs. And in response to that, they put up tariffs. That didn't do anything to affect the trade deficit. We know from past experience that protectionism doesn't really work. There's an inconsistency even much earlier down the line, which is that some of the policies that they're thinking about might not get them that intermediate goal of reducing the trade deficit. 
Mr Trump did talk a lot on the campaign trail about imposing tariffs on, on Chinese imports, for example, but he hasn't done that yet. What he has done is pull America out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big Asian trade deal. He's renegotiating NAFTA. What, what do we know about how he's really going to approach trade deals? The slogan is America first. And in a sense, that doesn't really mark a departure at all from previous administrations. You know, the Obama administration would say that they negotiated trade deals putting America first. That's that's their job. They represent the American people. How Trump's trade policy differs from previous administrations is that he's going for a bilateral approach. So older administrations went through big organizations like the World Trade Organization. They dealt with lots of countries at a time. The Trans-Pacific Partnership that, that Trump withdrew from was a multi-country agreement. Trump is saying, no, those bigger agreements actually reduce America's bargaining power. What America is going to do is it's going to go one on one and essentially behave much more aggressively in trying to get American advantages. Donald Trump is convinced that NAFTA uh, was a terrible, terrible deal for America and he's going to get changes and, and, and fight hard so that the Mexicans and the Canadians give him trade concessions. What's really, really unclear is whether he has in mind any specific policy changes to those trade deals that would get him the lower deficit that he wants. You mentioned several inconsistencies, contradictions, Henry. I mean, we've talked about one big one between uh, the deficit and growth, if you like. What, what, what do you see as the other major ones? So the second uh, possible contradiction relates to the tax reform programme. The administration hasn't been completely clear on how it sees the tax cuts it's proposing stimulating the economy. When Republicans usually talk about the benefits of tax cuts, they say they're going to spur investment, grease the wheels of the supply side of the economy, and boost the rate of long-run growth. That's one objective, and that's usually more associated with deficit-neutral tax reform, like Ronald Reagan did in 1986, uh, just, just making institutions and taxes work more smoothly. But on the other hand, it seems also as if they might be trying to do a kind of short-term stimulus that boosts the economy by increasing the deficit, more like what Ronald Reagan did in 1981. And that would suggest that America's main economic problem is that there's loads of slack in the economy and you need to heat it up a bit just in the short term. And the best avenue to achieve those two different goals are actually quite different. If you cut taxes for corporations, it's not going to provide much of a short-term spending boost, but it might give you some kind of long-term investment. So I think there's a bit of a tension there between those two goals. I'm not sure they're quite sure which one they're trying to achieve. Nevertheless, four months in, uh, I guess it's still the case, is it not, that the business community and the market still seem fairly sanguine about what Trump Trumponomics means, the, the stock market's at record levels, growth is doing OK? Yes, I think it will take time for the downsides of the Trump administration, if there are any, to play out. In the short term, if there are going to be corporate tax cuts, for instance, as looks likely, then that gives investors in the stock market reason for cheer. It's more hard to predict the downsides. We don't really know what's going to happen with trade. But if, if things took a turn for the worse, then I'll I would expect the stock market to look a bit different. And specifically on trade, Sumer, are things not quite as bad as we feared? I think on NAFTA, we're probably already seeing some of the effects. So there are reports that um, investment into Mexico is kind of on hold. There's huge amounts of uncertainty. Obviously, the, the point of a free trade deal is it's meant to create certainty for investors uh, between two countries. So, you know, Donald Trump may already be undermining that certainty that NAFTA was supposed to be providing there. Samir Keynes here in London. Henry Kerr in Washington. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. 
Now, we're all familiar with the made-in-China label seen on just about everything, but could we soon be seeing it also on our aeroplanes? Comac, China's state-owned aircraft manufacturer, has just successfully tested the C919, its first large passenger plane. Joining me now to discuss this development is The Economist, Charles Reed, who follows the industry. First of all, Charles, on the face of it, a huge step forward for Chinese manufacturing. Yes, on the face of it, it is. It's not like the Chinese have not built aircraft in the past. They have built military jets, but military jets don't have a good record of safety or reliability. But to build a commercially successful passenger jet, they have to operate at very high levels of safety and reliability. They have to operate for up to 20 hours a day, every day of the year, for 20 or 30 years for them to be profitable for airlines to run. And getting to that stage is what's so costly and complex about building passenger jets. The C919 is behind schedule. I mean, what has caused the delay? It's a variety of factors. The problem is that you have to build a supply chain to build all the parts. And this is uh, very difficult because you have to know the provenance of each part, where it was made, what piece of metal was it pressed out of. And Chinese industry, which has been focused on very low value added items, doesn't have that experience. There's also been difficulty in getting all the pieces to fit together. They're making some of the parts themselves, but a lot of the parts, for example, the engines and the landing gear are coming from Western manufacturers. And it's figuring how to to get those parts to operate and work together, which which is also part of the difficulty. As I understand it, this is a 168-seater, so a sort of direct rival for the Airbus A320, the Boeing 737. Is it seriously thinking of entering that market, competing with this big duopoly? Well, that's Comac's aim. It wants to break into this duopoly so that there's three players instead of two. Inside China, this is very likely to happen. Most of China's airlines are still owned by the Chinese state. They probably are going to be subjected to some patriotic uh, arm twisting to buy some of these planes. However, foreign buyers aren't particularly keen on them. The technology on the C919 is a decade old. It's a far less efficient plane to operate than Boeing's and Airbus's equivalent. Although um, one can expect these planes to be at an airport near you in China, outside of China, I'm not quite sure that's going to be the case in the next few years. But even that must be quite a worry to Airbus and Boeing, because China is, is such a huge market and where so much of the world's growth in aviation is expected to come from. Yes, both plane makers uh, expect China to be their biggest market over the next 20 or so years. They worry about losing a share of of the Chinese market to them, but they are more worried still about the generation of aircraft to come after this. Uh, When China has has actually learnt how to build these things and learnt how to build these things uh, more cheaply than the current generation. And so this is why Boeing and Airbus are investing so much money in trying to develop the aircraft future for after 2030, which might not look anything like the aircraft they build today. And of course, we're talking as if this is a threat now, but I suppose it's some time, some years before the C919 is in anything like commercial production. Comac is aiming for the first C919 to enter passenger service in 2020. It's already had to delay that date uh, quite a few years. There could be some more slippage. But the issue is that the aerospace industry runs on an industrial cycle of decades. You have to make decisions about what you invest in decades in advance. And so this might sound a long time, but in this industry, 10 years is not that far ahead. And Airbus and Boeing are having to think internally about how they deal with this threat today before it's too late. Charles Reed, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Money Talks. We'll be back next Tuesday. In London, this is The Economist. (laughs) 